Hi there, and welcome back, because I assume you come back every week or every couple of weeks when I do these things, to The Chinwag with me, Mike Laverick. Uh, with me today is a guy called Dan Bar. You, you can see his uh, face if you're watching the video about here is dulcet tones in a second. Um, we were just chatting offline a moment ago about had we actually met before, either physically, virtually, or whatever. Um, and I was explaining to, to Dan the uh, detailed uh, process I go through for selecting people to be on the chinwag, and it's called Twitter. It's called scrolling down the people who've added me recently and going, oh, why don't I have that guy on the chinwag? So if you want to get on the chinwag, you don't have to be uh, famous or well-known. You just have to at me on Twitter and you'll get on the show eventually. But um, without further ado, um, uh, let me introduce you to Dan the Man, as I was, I was calling him a little ago on Skype chat. <laughs> Dan, can you introduce yourself to people listening in? Can you tell us where you're at, where you are physically, and you know what you do, and maybe tell us a little bit of how you got into VMware? Sure. Uh, so I'm Dan Barr. I'm in uh, central Pennsylvania, and I've been, uh, been in IT for about 11 years. Um, started out, actually, out of college as a programmer. Uh, doing business programming for an insurance company, uh, decided fairly quickly I didn't want to do that forever. Um, so after about two years, I had an opportunity to move over into the, the systems and, and networking side uh, at the same company. So so I jumped at that, and uh, pretty shortly after, we started looking at uh, at virtualization and uh, started uh, started virtualizing about seven years ago, probably. In the three O days, you, you go know. back quite a bit then um, with with VMware. Yeah, definitely been doing it for uh, for, for a bit of a while. Uh, started out, you know, with with dev test uh, systems at first, and gradually uh, moved that up into into virtualizing production. And, uh, and I guess did that programming background still help you to this day, or is it like that thing I did in the past where way ago? It, it does. I mean, uh, actually, just the other week, I, I built it. You know, I fired up Visual Studio and built a tool to to delegate some some work to to another group. Uh, and definitely wouldn't have been able to do that if I hadn't had the, the programming background. But it helps, too, I think, in just understanding how software works, you know, what's, what's actually going on under the covers, how, um, how applications are designed and work. And, and I think that helps with then virtualizing those applications and managing them and dealing with them and knowing, you know, what, what kind of resources they need uh, and, and, you know, the kind of the, the design that, that goes into uh, into the applications. Now, I couldn't have asked for a more smoother segue into our first <laughs> question, actually. I mean, I don't know whether that was part of the master plan, but um, as people know, there's often <clears throat> an exchange of, of email between me and the Chinwagi, as they're sometimes referred to, uh, discussing, you know, what the topic is, and it's the Chinwagi who sets the agenda in most cases, or if they're active on a blog, I will scroll through their blog posts going, I'm interested in that. Let, let the person talk about what's on their blog post. It gives them a chance to promote their blog, but sometimes when you verbally explain something you've written down, it, it comes across differently. But one of the topics that you, you chose was the politics of, of virtualizing tier one apps, which when I read that, I look at the word politics and what I see is it isn't just about how many CPUs or how much memory or disk space or IOPSIT drives, it's how you interact with the application owners and the business and the rest of the team. So without incriminating yourself too much, <laughs> <laughs> tell us about the politics of, of what you've been going through. And you've mentioned also in your email about having to bridge various silos. So I was quite interested in you know, how you went about doing that, what sort of silos you rubbed up against, that kind of thing. So the floor is yours. Sure. So, I mean, yeah, it's definitely more than just a technology problem. Um, in most cases, that's actually the easier part. Uh, it's it's kind of well known. You know, there's a lot of resources out there for virtualizing things like SQL and Exchange and you know, any number of white papers. But, um, you know, at, at my previous job at that that insurance company, I, I was pretty much in terms of virtualization and and the infrastructure. I was, you know, it was a small company. I was pretty much. Uh, from the infrastructure side, the guy, you know, I did the networking, I did the storage, I did the VMware, I did the servers. So, you know, bridging silos wasn't really an issue. But uh, late last year, I, I moved over to a, a large uh, public uh, university and I'm um, working in, in one of the uh, one of the arms of that university now. And so, 
you know, now I've gone from managing a company of 200 people to 1,300 uh, in our uh, in our area of the university, and so there are a lot more. You know, I'm not I'm not alone anymore. There's a networking team. There's a SQL team. There's a um, you know, uh, I am doing storage uh, and, the, and the virtualization, but uh, there's definitely a lot more, uh, a lot more people involved. And so, you know, understand having done the networking before, you know, is definitely a help. We we all know how important networking is when when virtualizing, and uh, but also just bridging that gap to the you know, to for example, SQL DBAs or application owners who maybe haven't virtualize their tier one uh, applications before um, and in this particular case you know lately we've been working on virtualizing a SQL server and so just um, bridging that communications gap of you know the, the, all the new ca- you know I think we all know the arguments for you know in favor of virtualizing these tier one apps the availability the uh, flexibility that we can get mm-hmm. and you know, I, I, get, I don't get resistance on that end of things anymore. You know, I've seen resistance on that in the past. People, oh, I, I don't know if we want to virtualize this. Is it going to perform well enough? I think that, at least in, in my experience, is much less prevalent. But there is still the uh, the gap in you know all these new capabilities that we have, snapshotting and, and array-level stuff we can do, uh, brings new design considerations into how you install SQL, how you how you lay out where your where your databases are going to be. Where, you know, I mean, in the SQL installer, there's probably a dozen places you can specify directories and where to store things, and understanding well what impact is it going to have if I put the system databases here versus here versus, um, you know, those sorts of things, and the interactions that you know VM snapshots bring, and do I use. RDMs to get array level stuff, so that that, that communication um, and, and understanding is is what I think. Uh, I think what's interesting about that is the previous part of that narrative. You know, should we virtualize this? Full stop. You know, application owners demanding a physical box is now kind of done with. But it, the politics is just a different type of politics. It's the politics mm-hmm. of how do we correctly leverage and configure our virtualization layer to get the most out of it for both right. the application and also for our purchase of the actual virtualization layer in the in the first place. It was interesting that little story about being like the the, the chief of all the silos when you worked in a much smaller organization. Do you think that's helped in this transition to a larger organization that you know a little bit about everything rather than yeah. being too much in your own world? I do. Um, you know, Virtualization, you know, when when you're virtualizing everything, it touches everything. So it touches storage, it touches servers, and obviously the network and and applications. So being able to speak to, say, the network team in their language, you know, I know what you know VLANs are and and how routing works and and uh, that sort of thing. So being able to speak to each of the you know the kind of silos. Although I mean, at, I'm lucky at at my current organization, we are um, pretty. Team focus, so that the silos aren't you know they they've got soft walls, not not hard walls. So we can you know we work very closely together. So I'm lucky in that regard. But there's still that you know the terminology gap. Uh, the, so you know you know sysadmins who've always done sysadmin don't necessarily know all the terminology of uh, network people, and network people don't necessarily know the VMware terminology of you know port group versus vSwitch versus you know ne- you know vNIC or whatever. So. So I'm interested interested to know, because of your experience and what you've been through and what you're going through, do you see yourself as the new type of IT person that is going to come up over the next couple of generations? Do you see the kind of siloed method of doing things as kind of old school? Are you you a vision of the future of IT? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I don't don't know about that, but... uh... (laughs) You know, I definitely do think the you know the old rigid silos are definitely uh, definitely need to be broken down because otherwise you know organizations just can't uh, can't do what they need quickly enough uh, to get uh, you know to bring to bring value. I mean that's what it's all about. We got to run run the applications for the people who actually consume them. I mean this it's you know it's not about us. It's about getting the work done. So mm-hmm. you know breaking down those silos and being able to just you know go full steam ahead uh, without you know hopefully without so much of the politics is definitely going to be uh, important yeah i mean i think a couple of months ago maybe more than a year ago i was muting an idea that the model that small to medium sized businesses have for delivering it may become the model that's used 
in Enterprise, I, I think. So, more jack of all trades and less specialists and people who mm -hmm. can knit these things together into a, a seamless process. But also, it's they're kind of uh, having to have people who are cross disciplines, you know, not least of what if you get run over by a bus or you're on a holiday or whatever. Everybody needs to know a little bit about somebody else's job to to do staff coverage sort of nowadays. But uh, I don't know whether it's something that will happen sort of endemically over the years or whether some bright spark's going to say, let's just restructure the infrastructure, <laughs> restructure everything, which I don't know. I, I worked in a couple of companies um, before I went independent that seemed to be hooked on restructuring as the way of solving all their problems. And what it meant an awful lot of the time was just different bodies sat in different chairs, but still the same structure was there. You just didn't know who was responsible for anything anymore right. after the restructure, you know. So, but uh, I, I wonder whether um, your experience is a portent of what's coming, you know, or whether you felt you've had to fit in more with these silos and work with those silos more than, than you would have in the previous role. Well, I mean, it's definitely been an adjustment for me, um, you know, not not being able to to even touch a switch, you know, or well, not not so much that, but you know, not having, you know, my hands in everything has definitely been an adjustment. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's it's been refreshing uh, because I'm not you know the only one on call 24 seven, but uh, you know then there are other you know good people in our team who uh, who know what they're doing and, yeah, and can, I mean I, I've met a couple of guys who worked in small organizations and they like the control and they like the variability of the work but it can be a kind of lonely existence because if something goes wrong and you can't fix it it's you've got no one to turn to in terms of right. even even somebody just to turn around and say I'm doing this and they may respond with an idea where you're so close to the problem because they're looking externally you go oh, why didn't I think of that as a workaround you know I used to have that all the time with yeah the, nothing like a second set of eyes yeah yeah, yeah. So, I mean, was there, in this process of wanting to virtualize, say, SQL, for example, was there one or two specific gotchas that were discovered after the fact or during the process that you could warn your fellow community members about? You know, don't, don't do this or watch out for this. Well, I mean, the biggest thing is, uh, the, I think, you know, with SQL especially, is the storage uh, design. And understanding how VM snapshots and SAN snapshots all interact and how they can affect the SQL environment, um, you know, and, and planning for doing things like storing your, you know, if you're going to use VNPK, well, you know, think about making your database and your log volumes and whatever uh, independent instead, you know, so that, you know, if, if you roll back a snapshot of your VM, have you just rolled back all of your data, you know, all, the, all your last hour of transactions or whatever in your database, too? So it's things like that. Um, you know, in our case, we ended up going with, uh, with physical mode RDMs uh, because we wanted to take advantage of some of the array-level tools that we had. Uh, we're using appellant storage and, you know, we, you know, they've got some snapshotting tools that are application-aware, and so we wanted to take advantage of those. Um, it's funny, it's funny you mentioned snapshots because I remember when I was an instructor, I used to, I used to say to the students, "I'm going to tell you all about VMware snapshots." And the first thing you'll start doing is thinking about all the things that can go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but I said, "Believe me, I know what all the things that can go wrong." But let's focus on how do you use the technology from an end user's perspective. Then I'll explain what's actually going under the tin with the delta that grows, the snapshot, mm -hmm. the memory. These are the different files. And I said, "We'll end with." All the things that could possibly go wrong, but I didn't. I didn't see that as these are bugs in VMware snapshots. More that well, this is the design of how snapshots work, and these are the consequences that that come from them. And it wasn't so much disadvantages; it's just that this is how the technology works. You know, if yeah, you convert a snapshot, what happens to your data? Right. You, you could probably set the same thing on a snapshot of a volume. You know, if you if you present a different volume or you revert a, a volume, you do it at the array level. You can have similar disastrous consequences if you put it at the array level. You just get different features and different horrible things that could happen to you right. if you don't right. manage it properly. I mean, yeah, you've just got to. I mean, you've got to go th work through all those scenarios and, and yeah, like you said, understand those consequences because uh, you know, you know, the first thing is you've got to understand how they work. And and so I think there's a lot of misinformation still about what VM snapshots are and. 
what they actually do and, and how they should be used, or how, they're, how they're designed to be used anyway. And uh, you I, mean, know, it's, I, I still have to, to, to hammer the point that snapshots are not backups, you know, that, that sort of thing. Well, I mean, this is the thing about that word snapshot. I used to say to people, this is probably the most abused, misused word in storage. <laughs> because even if you look at storage vendors who use the term snapshot, they all have their own peculiar way of handling them, dealing with them, reservation of space for snapshots, yada, yada, what the retentions are. Um, is there an IO penalty or not? Yeah. Um, so even within storage world, putting VMware to one side, Snapshots is a word that's misused and abused, but I mean, if we had somebody who was very new to VMware listening, you know, right now, how would you differentiate snapshots as they are from VMware, say, to what they what you're doing with NetApp, for example? Well, I mean, on the on the VMware side, I think yeah, they're definitely uh, intended for very short term use. I mean, in, in VMware's own uh, KB article on on snapshot best practices, I think they say you know no more than seventy two hours, which I think maybe a little aggressive, but uh, you know, I usually start getting a little concerned when snapshots are, are a week or two old, um, yeah, especially outside of a dev test environment. You know, uh, you know, in dev test, I think it's a little bit different. You know, you may have a, a baseline configuration that you're working with and trying different things. It's okay, let me try something this way, and no, not that didn't work quite right. Roll it back, and so you know, a little longer term snapshots there. But it's um, you know, it's a point in time. It's it's a what did this thing look like at this exact moment? And if I roll back there, that's where I'm at. Mm. So if you're, you know, one of the things uh, I think people don't necessarily think about is if you're in an Active Directory environment, computer accounts rotate their passwords every 30 days. And so if you roll back to a snapshot that's 31 days old or just happens to bridge that, that you know, that point in time where the password changed, your you know your machine's not going to get on Active Directory anymore until you go through a password reset process with it or or disjoin and rejoin. So there's there's definitely a you know issues issues like that with with keeping snapshots long term and and they have a very real uh, I/O penalty too. Um, you know, it's just not the case with the rare-based snapshots because it's just a pointer that points to a different location. Yeah, know. depending on the depending on the style of snapshots, uh, you know, for example, like our our compellent, you know, they're doing a method of snapshot that really, yeah, like you said, doesn't have that that uh, I/O penalty so much. Um, I mean, where I use VMware snapshots quite a lot is if I'm doing something which I know is unsupported and can have <laughs> disastrous consequences. So, for example, I'm, I'm running vCloud Director at the moment, but the virtual appliance, there's no official way of upgrading from one flavor to another. You just download a new appliance and scrap your previous environment, which really isn't what I want to do. Um, I guess I could have installed the production version of the software, which is to support upgrades, mm -hmm. but I didn't. But um, probably what I'm going to do on this week is down my vCloud Director appliance, snapshot it, and have a go at doing something that isn't supported. True. And if it all goes horribly wrong, I just revert the snapshot. But it's very much a test and dev kind of use case. Mm -hmm. What I used to say to my students was <coughs> probably the most common use, production use of, of VMware snapshots is in backup, for virtual machine backup. Where the VM is snapshotted, you can then export the, the VMDKs, you can back them up, archive them somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And when the backup is over, the snapshot is committed and you don't right. lose any data. And the only reason that the snapshot is being used is to unlock the files in the file system that you want to back up. And I said, beyond that, you're really starting to get into dangerous territory of using VMware snapshots on production systems because of yeah, there are all these possible uh, consequences, you know. Yeah, and I think that, you know, what you mentioned there with the backups, how, you know, snapshots are used in backups, I think that may be lends to some of the confusion over snapshots and backups and all because, you know, but, but it's just, there are means to an end, you know, it's, you take the snapshot, you do the backup, you remove it and it's, and it's done hopefully in, in a short period of time. And yeah. I mean, it's I just, just a mean to, to get it done. The other, I think the other aspect of snapshots already in, in, well, we used to have in, in VMware Update Manager a way of patching VMs and you could snap the shot between each patch, therefore you could roll them back if you had a, a bad right. patch applied, but of course and we, it's not there anymore. But I could see them being used in something like, say, vSphere replication to allow people to go mm -hmm. back in points of time or something like that. Um, but yeah, anyway, I didn't want to go off on a big discussion about <laughs> snapshots, but I, I wanted to try and get something specific about 
this 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 process of virtualizing tier one applications and when certain features are appropriate or are not appropriate. But did, did you have something to say before we moved on to the next uh, topic? Well, one thing I definitely wanted to say was, uh, you know, when we went down this process, we kind of had a, a pre-meeting, you know, with, with myself and with the uh, uh, some of the other uh, sysadmins involved in our, our virtualization and our backup processes and our, our SQL people. And, you know, I kind of had a pre-meeting say, here here's how it might look, here's how. But then, you know, after that, it was all, we tried to do it via email, you know, and, and there was still some of that confusion left. We hadn't quite figured, you know, nailed it all down. And, um, you know, things, st- it, start going back and forth in email. So I, I would say that, you know, the most important part is get into a room with, with a whiteboard, go over what, you know, what the application team is looking for and, and capabilities they want, kind of go over that, that design stuff of, okay, well, if we do it this way, here's what it's going to impact. And, and, you know, nothing beats getting into the room. And, and once we did that, you know, a second time and, and went over it, you know, uh, you know, kind of a finalized uh, approach to it, I've uh, got everyone on the same page, and and we've been uh, you know, moving along uh, ever since. So, so. You're advocating more meetings. <laughs> well, sometimes, uh, sometimes a face-to-face meeting is necessary. Uh, email just doesn't get the job done. Uh, I, I I often uh, when people ask me stuff on Twitter, I say, "Do you want to jump on Skype?" Because by the time they've written down in an email the nature of their problem, and then another fifteen emails have gone backwards and forwards. We could have had that conversation in half an hour, and it, it right. means I'm not sat in my office at home, not talking to people all day except uh, <laughs> my my wife. So, but anyway, let's let's move on to another topic, which was also in our kind of emails offline, which is um, that you've been ramping up automation, as you put it, with Power mm-hmm. CLI, and so tell us a little bit about what sort of Power CLI work you've been doing as a kind of background. And then I'll fire some questions at you and see see what you think. I'm not going to ask you anything technical um, because your power CLI knowledge is probably better than mine. I would have thought. But um, what what was driving? What needed to be automated? That power CLI became the way to do it. Well, there's definitely some um, uh, some things we're doing. So uh, right now, you know, in in our environment, we're we're not using uh, Site Recovery Manager. Uh, we do have multiple uh, multiple data sets, something I've used in the past at, at my previous job, but uh, at my current one, we don't have that. So there's some things we're doing with, uh, you know, kind of a poor man's uh, DR uh, uh, until we get, you know, get our array level replication all, all where it needs to be, uh, doing things like cloning VMs cross, uh, cross cluster just to get them in a different place. And, uh, mm. you know, and there's definitely more, uh, more I can do in that arena as far as, you know, when it, if, if it would come time to, to an actual recovery. Uh, until we can, you know, potentially get uh, get some budget in place for something like SRM to really automate all of that. But uh, you know, we have uh, in our environment, we've got you know between our our main data centers and and a lot of uh, remote locations, we've got you know thirty four hosts now. Um, you know, a few of them are just you know, especially the remote side, they're just running one or two VMs, but it's still better than running one or two physical servers in that yeah. site. But Making a change consistently across all those hosts uh, is definitely not something you want to do by pointing and clicking constantly through the uh, uh, the, the vSphere interface. So uh, there's been a lot a lot of that sort of stuff I've been doing to to roll through, you know, a subset of hosts or all the hosts, set various options, um, information gathering too. Uh, when I when I first took the job, you know, obviously I stepped into the environment and didn't know a thing about it yet, so. Uh, started, you know, using some Power CLI and and also some some tools like uh, like RV tools uh, out there to just gather information about about the environment. Look at all the the vSwitch settings. Make sure they were all consistent. Look at all the port group settings. Uh, same thing. And so a little uh, bit of a lot of that kind of thing. An audit of some description. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was very helpful for... for what, I, what I thought was interesting in your email, though, is that you sort of hinted that by going through this process with Power CLI, it's helped you have a better understanding of the product and got you back to first principles of, of vSphere. And what I thought was interesting about that was why. What, what was it specifically about using Power CLI that got you back to the first principles of how all this stuff worked? I think uh, sometimes you know the working with the GUI tools can kind of abstract so much away from you in terms of what's going on underneath the covers uh, that getting back to that scripting layer where you're working with objects that represent the the real underlying uh, you know uh, constructs that are that are going on can kind of get you back to that 
oh yeah, that's why that works, or that's how that actually works under the covers, whereas the GUI is just kind of, you know, click here, click here, click here, and, and you don't necessarily need to completely uh, know what's going on underneath the covers. But getting back to that scripting route and working with objects at a lower level, I think can kind of, yeah, like you said, bring you back to basics. Yeah. Okay. So here's the killer question, which <laughs> um, I haven't shared with you, but... It occurred to me um, how we use these words automation, orchestration, scripting. And we have different words for these things. But I was trying in my own mind, get in my head, what the difference is. What's the mm -hmm. difference between automation and orchestration? If we script something, have we automated it? If we script something, have we orchestrated it? Right. Or have we just created a bunch of scripts even I, I got a little acronym out of just a bunch of scripts question mate dear boss <laughs> just a bunch of scripts um so at what point does a, a couple of scripts on from power cli become automation or become orchestration where does when does it start becoming something more than just a couple of scripts that do a task for you yeah, I think the the big. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of and a lot of what I've done, I, I've just been kind of like I said, ramping up my own power CLI knowledge in the last few months, and definitely, you know, with a with a larger environment, it's definitely more important for me to to get get more advanced in that area, and so I've been doing that. But uh, you know, a lot of what I, you know, if you write a one off script just to do something one time because you don't feel like doing it through the through the GUI, I, that's not automation. That's that's scripting. That's you know, that's just making your job a little easier. Mm. Uh, for that next hour or whatever, but um, you know, I think when when it transitions to automation is when you're doing a repeating process, a repeatable process, scheduling something to happen. Uh, you know, we do some some monitoring, some regular monitoring, and, and get some kind of status reports on the environment via regular uh, regular scripting. Uh, you know, scheduled daily, weekly, whatever. Um, uh, similarly, the you know the, this DR process of cloning certain VMs across you know all over the place uh, is is a repeated thing. It's certainly not something we want to do. You know, spend spend a few hours doing every week. So it's you know I think that's the level of automation. And then orchestration uh, is uh, is definitely on my on my radar. You know, vSphere orchestrator is definitely on on my radar to start building some repeatable processes for people to use so you know when you know the, the first one I have in mind is a is a VM deployment uh, you know a workflow basically and start tying in other elements like our IP address management system which which interacts with our network layer and so when you deploy a new VM go ahead and insert the MAC address and, and grab an IP you know from the from the IP uh, management tool and start bringing together multiple elements maybe you know outside of the outside of the virtual environment I think that's a good way of, of defining it especially I think the use of the term workflow because I think when you speak about workflows if you like a script is a workflow it's a set of instructions that has a series of logic to it if this then do something else mm -hmm. but it's often quite pragmatical it's not about a wider business process that has to go through and often scripting is specifically sending an instruction to put a management system it's alone with a, a set of languages that only it can understand power CLI is understood by Virtual Center, and that's mm -hmm. it. Apart from VCloud Direct at all, but I think where where it becomes orchestration is when you start bringing in not just one particular vendor, but like you said, your IP management system, and you're bringing in more of a, the overall process. Because we could have a script that deployed a new VM, but it wouldn't necessarily be orchestration. <laughs> right. Because if all it does is create a new VM, but it doesn't do all the other tasks that you have to do, which involve something that doesn't touch VMware at all, but touches some other system it's not really a workflow it's just a script that sends an instruction to a management system but i guess you have to start with something at some layer right. i think what's interesting as well as was your anecdote about previously you'd used srm and the organization that you're in doesn't and so scripting stroke automation stroke orchestration to pick which one you're where you're at in that journey is something that's being used as an alternative to perhaps having SRM because certain ducks are not in a row yet to make that, that happen. And I think that's very interesting because sometimes those 
that automation of those scripts that were originally put together as a workaround because we weren't ready but we needed the thing they, they end up lasting a lot longer than we <laughs> you know than we care to think of you know and if you leave an organization and come back four years later you'll find that your your automation stroke orchestration stroke scripts are probably still there in some size or or matter so I can understand why it happens um, it, it used to be that people used to say well we can script all of this stuff that SRM does SRM is an expensive product they would say to me when we could do this for free and I used to say to them yes that's true to some degree you know you've got this free thing called Parity Align but it, it's not free it involves people having to manage and maintain it at the end of the day and what if they leave and somebody else comes in you know we're not trying to make a big case for SRM here but I think any amount of automation or orchestration at some point that almost becomes like a piece of software doesn't it and yeah I mean it's it's something you've got to got to maintain and, and monitor and, and manage and yeah it definitely takes takes time and you know especially in this case I mean yes cloning the VMs that's easy you know yeah. deleting the clone on the other side start the new clone done but it's all the recovery side stuff that that you know. I mean, it, you know, and, and having worked with SRM, knowing what it does, having done what it does manually, uh, and and not really enjoying it, uh, definitely. Uh, you know, I, I definitely appreciate SRM as a product. I think it's uh, you know. It's funny definitely that you mentioned that because in, in my first ever book on SRM, I had a chapter which I gave away for free, which was the last chapter, which was how to do everything that SRM did by PowerCLI. Mm-hmm. And some people took that to indicate, oh, Mike doesn't think you need SRM, <laughs> you just need PowerCLI. And I was like, no, the intention was to show you how hard it would be to, you'd spend all your time trying to duplicate what the product was doing and not spending your time on the applications and in the services and whether they'd come up and whether the service uptime was rapid enough and whether it was consistent when it came up. You get so locked in into the machinations of getting the process just off the tarmac, you know, like getting a spaceship off the ground, just getting it in orbit, that you don't have any time for the mission, which is, you know, right. it has yeah. to circle around and come back to Earth. You know, woohoo, we've got it, got it into <laughs> the atmosphere. Oh, well, what do we do now, guys? You know, so, but um, it was an attempt to show what that manual process was looked like because there's an interesting kind of parallel here is, until you've automated something, you don't often know how that process really works. But also, until you've tried to automate it yourself, you don't realize how difficult it is and how a piece of software can make your life that much easier because somebody's basically right. taken all that legwork away from you. So, like you said, if all you see is next, 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 you don't see the benefit of the power of that next, next, next because you don't see all the machinations of what takes place for that next, next, next to occur, mm-hmm. you know, so. Yeah, and something like SRM, you see that price tag on it, but you don't necessarily think about the price tag, like you said, the that, that soft cost of all that time and, and, you know, effort spent trying to do it yourself when you could spend that, you know, time better doing more interesting things, you know, well, and I think ad- that's the biggest thing with the, with automation is, yeah. is just I, free stuff. up. I had a PowerPoint slide in this that debated uh, going scripting, build your own, mm-hmm. poor man's SRM, that's what I would call it, like you're saying, and uh, SRM itself. And I had all the advantages and disadvantages, and in the end, I just had one sentence at the end. I said, when I was running out of time for the PowerPoint, I said, look, these are all the advantages and disadvantages, but it's really the last sentence. And the last sentence was just in quotes. There used to be this guy called Dan. We really liked Dan. Dan, Dan left the company. <laughs> Dan, Dan's gone somewhere else and you know the scripts that Dan worked uh, ran they were brilliant and well, but something's changed about our environment and the script doesn't work anymore uh, we really missed Dan <laughs> so you can become a bit uh, the business can be become a bit incumbent or a bit uh, overly dependent on these scripts and they're great when they work, but when they don't work, is the skill still there that actually developed that script? And I used to, when I was a more jobbing consultant, I used to get customers saying, oh, we've got this script, it's uh, 6,000 lines long or something stupid like that. And it used to work, but it, it didn't work last week. Could you have a look at it and fix it by tomorrow? And I'd be like, you're crazy, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, the, you make all those jokes about scripts, you know, like, uh, why did the guy who wrote the script originally have one variable 
added to itself again plus three because <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that in scripts <laughs> variable plus variable plus three and like and like and no what, what is yeah. the magic number three represent what cosmic <laughs> significance why is two wrong and four like too much you know and uh, and I had a situation once where I I basically tried to I looked at the problem and I wrote a script from scratch. And I ended up writing something that was half the length of the original thing that did exactly the same. So I'm like, do I waste my time trying to get my head around this guy's thought processes? Or do I approach the, pro the problem with a new pair of eyes and think, well, how would I fix it? And then you have ownership over that problem. Mm -hmm. Until I move on. Oh, we had this guy called Mike who <laughs> did all this work for us, and now Mike's uh, working for VMware, and uh, he hasn't got time for us anymore. You know. So anyway, I guess we. This does lead, I think, to an interesting segue to our last topic, which was uh, you did uh, a V Brown bag on Site Recovery Manager at last year's VMworld. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So uh, before before we get into it, tell us what V Brown Bag is for people who've been sat under a stone for the last two years and don't have an <laughs> idea what V Brown Bag is. So do a bit of advertisement for V Brown Bag before we get into that. Sure. So yeah, V Brown Bag is. I mean, it's basically a community run, um, kind of uh, like like you know, uh, I think the name came from you know doing like a brown bag lunch, you know, where you kind of get together and just learn from each other, and then it's just done. Uh, uh, virtually now, you know, done via via the web. So it's basically a weekly uh, podcast now branching out into, you know, not only a U.S. podcast, but also there's a, an APAC, uh, an EMEA uh, podcast, uh, Latin America uh, version in, in Spanish. Chinese getting involved as well, aren't they? Oh, are they? Yeah. That's thing I've heard. So VBAMAC goes global. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But, but it's uh, it's a great resource and and you know you, you can't beat learning from people who've done it you yeah. know and so like, and uh, they did like a, a track of V brown bags at the uh, hangout space at VMworld. I know I did a couple kind of dragged in, but yours was about SRM. How much time did you get to deliver your your most important thoughts? Yeah, so I mean, the tech talks were uh, you know they were about ten minutes. I had a, about a ten minute slot to get up and and you know. Do a do a quick uh, quick presentation. Not really enough time for for a demo, and that's something you know the V Brown bags uh, usually you know the full hour podcasts usually involve a, a demo if uh, you know if we're looking at something specific. But uh, uh, yeah, with only ten minutes, uh, you can kind of just hit a hit a, a niche topic and and uh, do what you can with the time. So yeah, I decided to talk about uh, SRM testing. Uh, not necessarily how you install SRM and how, or how you design SRM, but actually just the process of testing your DR plan with SRM. So give us, you've got 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> What's, what were your lessons learned? What were your top three or four points about SRM and testing recovery plans? Well, I mean, I started out basically, you know, with, uh, you know, a DR plan isn't worth the the paper that it's written on, or or the word doc it's written on, uh, if it, if it hasn't been tested, uh, and I think that's one of the most important features of SRM. Besides all the you know the automation during an actual recovery, which you hope you'll never have to do, uh, is the the testing component, being able to bring up your environment in this little bubble uh, and and actually see what happens uh, without disrupting your production, and being able to do that in the middle of the day if if you want to without disrupting your you know your production environment. So I talked about some some you know things uh, that that go into that, uh, and and some things we had done at my you know I was still with uh, with my previous company at the time. Uh, some things we had done uh, with regards to SRM testing. Uh, so you know we had a, a DR cluster at at the remote site, and things like having a, a set of VLANs available uh, at that remote site that were not physically routed on on the physical network, but were just there for SRM tests. And so that way, you know, they could be trunked to all the hosts, and so VMs that that wound up coming up on different hosts could actually talk to each other, um, and and we could actually do some functional application testing, not just did the VM boot, because that doesn't really tell you much. Uh, you really want to know: does the app work? Uh, it, can it talk to its database? Can and if it's it a DRS uh, cluster where you don't know where the VM is going to come up, just using a standard switch without any mix attached isn't really going to help because. Part A of the app could be on one host, part B could be on another host, and they're not going to see each other. Their, their services might not even start because they're not meeting their dependency requirements. 
Yeah, exactly. And and if you just you know, out of the box, that's basically what SRM will do. It'll create a, you know, during the recovery plan, it'll create a V-switch with no physical NICs and just create the port groups. But then you're, you're isolated. Your bubble becomes that host, not your, your recovery cluster. Um, so, you know, there was that. And then, you know, using a, uh, I would use a, a uh, Viata uh, virtual router then uh, that I could just power up inside that test bubble to actually get that you know that routing between the VLANs for the for the VMs during the test, and then power it down after the test, and and when I didn't need it anymore, um, you know other things like uh, what don't you want to replicate? So uh, things like Active Directory. Um, you know, I think uh, most AD administrators are probably familiar with the problems if you clone or roll back a, a domain controller, you get that, you know, the USN rollback issue and can actually corrupt your, your directory. Mm -hmm. uh, so rather, you know, have, rather than clone your, your AD and, and attempt to bring it up, have, have a domain controller running uh, in your disaster environment. You, you probably do anyway because, uh, you know, there may be other services running there that depend on it. And then for a test, I would clone it in yeah, yeah. to the bubble. Not, not and, least uh, yeah. SRM, you have to log in and authenticate against an AD. Sure, yeah. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation it. there. If you, if you can't log into the thing that allows you to bring up the thing, the, it, it, I've always sort of viewed those services as being like core infrastructure services that mm -hmm. things like DNS and Active Directory, you don't, you don't recover those. You use their own availability technologies across sites because yeah. they're the kind of things you need up and running after a disaster that if you don't have it, you're, you're going to have to bring those things back by hand, aren't you? I think. Yeah, and no, that's definitely a good point. I mean, if, if you have a capability within an application like Active Directory or uh, even Exchange or SQL, if you have a, an application level uh, replication capability, uh, that's usually better than doing it at lower levels because then the application knows when the other side has failed, when it's gone. But in the case of Active Directory, I mean, you you know, you, you do have that issue where if you're if if you bring back an old copy of a, of a domain controller, then you're in some you're in for a world of hurt. Sure. So yeah, I mean, so then you know if you're you know the issue was then if you're not replicating your domain controller and if it's not included in your SRM plan, how do you have AD services inside your your SRM test bubble? And so it was you know just showing how you know we would take that DR site domain controller, just clone it inside the test bubble. And now you've got AD inside your inside your little uh, isolated network, um, and then you know just going through the process of uh, bringing everything up, and then go you know log in, and 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 we even at, at, you know towards towards the end got to the point of having application owners, you know, give them a get them into the the web client and get them a console on some of the machines in this test bubble, and hey, test test your application. Is is everything working? Is everything looking good? So getting that real that real comfort level of yeah, this is actually going to work if we need it to. Assuming your application owner knows that how the application works, and then it's working. well, that that's helpful. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like we say I say that, but joking apart, sometimes application owners weren't actually the creator of that application, and they've sure. inherited it from somebody else. So sometimes there is a little bit of the blind leading the blind because the application owner isn't really a hundred percent sure how all these various bits fit together. Here's a question for you, which I hadn't thought of until we started talking, which is um, if you had SRM, but before having SRM, you'd had a scripted solution, would you carry on maintaining that scripted solution as a kind of plan B in case SRM didn't work out for you? Or would you ditch that plan B and just put your eggs in the SRM basket? Yeah, I, I don't know about that. I mean, uh, I don't once you get to the level of you know and with SRM I've always used array level replication uh, haven't haven't done much with uh, with the vSphere replication but I think once you once you become comfortable with the product and and confident uh, that it'll work uh, I you know I, I wouldn't see see myself maintaining that you know a, a separate process on on top of that um, so it would be an additional burden wouldn't it after all yeah definitely and and you know if you if we layer on you know because we've also got vm backups going on and those are going off site so in a real real worst case scenario where srm completely failed to, to do what it was supposed to do or there was some issue with the array level replication would be there. that the very last resort yeah we could pull off of those backups and, and obviously it takes a lot longer because you got to wait for the restores but it's kind of a, a rainy day 
last resort. Plus, a replication is great, but replication does replicate corruption and replicate sure. viruses as well, and it, it adds a level of complexity if you have to roll back not what happened 15 minutes ago, but an hour ago, two hours ago, a day ago, until you find a good source of that data that you can actually use and still fulfill, fulfills the requirements of the business in terms of their recovery point objective as well. So there's always that kind of tussle of how far back do we go to get rid of this problem. Mm -hmm. If we go too far back, then it's of no use to us. So horses for courses. Here's another question I hadn't thought of asking, but because you mentioned testing, there's, in my mind, there's two types of tests you can do with SRM. There's the test that you do uh, during production hours where you click test and VMs come up. But then there's this other test, which is maybe one you only do once a quarter or twice a year, where you literally <laughs> do a failover to another location, despite the fact that there hasn't actually been any disaster and there's no business need to do that. Would you still recommend those kind of less frequent tests uh, on top of the, the one that you might do on a weekly or monthly basis just to check that the thing is working? I mean, I guess uh, my thinking on that would be if, you know, in my previous environment, we were effectively 100% virtualized. So there was nothing outside of that SRM test that we would have needed except maybe slam a rule set into, into the edge firewall to get internet access back. Um, and so we, we didn't really do those, those kinds of, uh, we call them fire drill tests, you know, and uh, to actually fail everything over. Um, you know, I think in an environment where you've got a mix of virtual and physical and some other things going on at different layers that maybe More aren't reflected parts. in an SRM test. Sorry? More moving parts. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I think that's where that kind of a, a test can come into play, you know, an orchestrated uh, failover, uh, planned failover. And I guess you could argue that some people might have to do that from an auditing perspective, from a legal perspective. Yeah, there's definitely requirements. Isn't, isn't, uh, isn't there. The way I've tried to differentiate between the two in the minds of customers is I've said to them, the test that you click that's called test in SRM, treat that like you testing that the fire bell works on a Monday morning. You know, everybody knows it's going to be at 10 a.m. It goes mm -hmm. ding, ding, ding. Then it stops and nobody evacuates. So that's just testing that the systems are actually functional. But a real test is perhaps one that you do once a quarter where the, the bell goes ding, 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 and it doesn't stop. And people <laughs> do get out of the building, a register is taken, and you look for your fire marshals, and you look to see whether people have put themselves in the right zones, and you're not allowed back in the building until the fire brigade say, you're clear, so even the fire brigade turn up and do the drill. And there's a big difference between those two types of tests but we call them tests, yeah. <laughs> whatever way. But one, I, in my own mind, feels much more rigorous, one that I can depend on, rather than a test that just tells me the, the bells work, doesn't tell me whether my staff are ready for that process to actually happen, you know. Yeah, and, and that kind of a test would definitely identify holes in your plan, uh, things you didn't consider, uh, just doing a, you know, an SRM-level test. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely a part of the whole DR uh, scenario, you know, the, the whole picture to, to do something like that. Like I said, at my, at my last job, we were kind of working through our, our DR uh, capabilities and hadn't quite reached that point, but it was, it was, it was on the roadmap, and uh, it's definitely something that's going to be uh, something we look at at my, uh, my current job. What I like about that analogy, though, is when you do the test for real, if that makes sense, is that moment when human beings are in an office and it goes ding, 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 and they start looking at each other and going, is this just a test? <laughs> do, do you think we we should get out? Yeah, and yeah. you start looking around to see whether other people are doing anything, and like maybe one or two people start to go and like, yeah, I think I think we're going to evacuate. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a kind of strange human response to the bell, uh, rather than thinking, oh my God, that doesn't normally happen, let's get out of here as quickly as possible. People are like, you know, I really don't like doing tests. So I'll hang around a little bit to see what other people do, you know. Yeah, it's raining outside. <laughs> I really don't want to. No, I think we'll stay in Steinburn instead, you know. So, <laughs> so um, I guess uh, SRM is something that maybe the organization that you're working at currently might look at in, in the future, but they need to get their, their storage side of things uh, together first. Is that right? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're going through, uh, you know, the, these upgrades in our storage environment, getting the, you know, getting that array level replication in place uh, and where we want it and in the, you know, the physical locations we want it. Uh, doesn't do you much good if you're replicating two racks away. Uh, so, um, you know, once, once all that's, uh, you know, in place, uh, yeah, I think definitely a, a tool like, like SRM would be uh, on the roadmap. It's funny how you say replicating to something two racks away can be of no good to you, but I've actually come across customers who do that with SRM, and they're actually using SRM to replicate from one building to another building on the same site. Um, they're not using it as a DR technology, obviously, because we mm-hmm. use the entire site, but it, they're doing it if, what if we lose the whole building? Or what if we have a server for server room fire and we've got a facility that's not affected? Or what if we need to recover a VM really, really quickly? Well, we could recover it from something that is less than a couple of seconds old and use their SRM as a recovery mechanism. I must admit, it's not a business case that you see very often for SRM because I think the way SRM is sold is SRM equals DR automation. But really, when you think about it, if your stuff is here and it's also somewhere else, that gives you opportunities to do other things with the product which perhaps weren't originally in the, the salesperson's pitch. You know, <laughs> it's a recovery tool at the end of the day. Where you recover it from is up to you and the reasons for recovering it are up to you at the, as well. It needn't be just a disaster. I guess in my own vested interest, I've looked for different usage cases for SRM to try and break it out of the purely DR only mm-hmm. field. But that, that's mainly because I like technology and I want it to be more popular. Um, <laughs> well, there's a... gonna, you've, the customer is always going to look at their usage case and say, well, that doesn't fly for us or that, that's interesting to us. But anyway, maybe um, we could have you back in uh, a, a while when, when you've done with that SRM project or something like that. Maybe you'll have some more lessons learned, especially in a, a larger sure. organization where they're, like we were saying, they're more moving parts. Is that something you'd be interested in doing? Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, when that happens, if and when, you never know, these projects can <laughs> take a while. Just give us a tweet and um, maybe we'll come back and talk about that. Sure. Well, thank you very much, Dan. It's been a pleasure chatting to you and being a bit technical too, which I like. Um, <laughs> thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're welcome. <laughs>